0: Well, today we are in part two of our Redefining Love series. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians 13. If you do not have a Bible, then I invite you to steal one from us today, all right? In fact, just right now, raise your arm if you would like to have a Bible in your hand so that you could look at it on paper, and uh, one of our ushers will come and and pass that out to you. Um, But as you're opening to 1 Corinthians 13, I need to confess to you. All right, one, one right up here, one right up here. I need to confess to you, that I have always viewed love as soft, but I don't think I can be really blamed for it. I I think it's something that our culture has pushed. For, For instance, if you go on Google Images and you just type in the word love, these are some of the images you see. You'll be inundated with pinks and reds and whites and purples and flowers and heart-shaped trees and clouds and sunsets and beaches and all this soft mushy stuff. In fact, if you look at the video that we showed at the very beginning, you saw the color scheme, that the music was light, even the characters were drawn kind of curved, everything about it was soft. In fact, last Sunday at the Super Bowl, during the halftime show, Coldplay and Beyonce and Bruno were kind of finishing up their concert. And as it ended, the camera pans back in this one half of the stadium, is holding up cards. And it says, believe in love. And if you look there, you see the color scheme. It's all these light pastels because we view love as soft. And so I don't think I should be blamed for doing this. When I was dating Leanne, she was turning 20, and I gave her a birthday card. And it's really pathetic. Love turns you into a three-year-old, I guess. And then the bad thing is, she pulls it out of her box, and she flips it over to open it. And there on the back is more drawing. So she decides she has to save this for posterity's sake and probably a sermon illustration. And she cuts it open and proceeds to pull out a card. It looks like this. Like, what 20-year-old gives his girlfriend this for her birthday and thinks that's going to wow her, all right? I don't know, but it gets worse because I proceeded to color the entire inside and wrote her a nice little letter. Now, notice the color scheme, the rainbow, the sun, the heart, the flowers. It all says love is soft. Now, you know what's remarkable about this is that about three or four weeks later, I proposed marriage, and she said yes, all right? So clearly, she was as crazy as I was to say yes to a guy who would do this. But I have a feeling I'm not the only one in this room who's done something equally embarrassing. I mean, we probably, some of you married couples probably have little pet names for one another. Uh, Maybe you've got little inside jokes uh, and you, you kind of don't want anyone to know because maybe it'd be a little embarrassing, but you do these cute little things because love is soft. Or, or look at the way we treat babies. You know, you hold this baby. In fact, I was doing it this morning with uh, Eliana. You know, I'm sitting there holding her, and suddenly my voice goes up a little bit, and I talk to her just a little softer. Did you know this is not just an American thing? This happens around the world. We talk to babies like this. Because love is soft. We also dress them in their baby blues and their pinks, and, and we see love as this gentle thing. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not going to say today that love is not soft. In fact, today we're going to read that love is kind. All right? Kindness has this aspect of gentleness, of softness to it. But when our culture is so heavy on the definition of love being a soft thing, we forget the other side of it, that love is also tough. Love is not just cotton candy. Love is also like a rock. Love is not just some little winged cherub looking around to shoot 20-year-olds and make them draw birthday cards to look like three-year-olds. Love is also like an MMA fighter who's willing to go at it because love is tough and it will never quit. And believe it or not, we're going to see this in the most famous passage about love that we know of, a passage that's read at weddings, a passage that swoons the heart. And we're going to see over this beautiful veneer, this tough, solid core that has the potential to absolutely revolutionize your life and those around you. So let's pray. So Father, as we get into 1 Corinthians 13, I ask that you be the teacher today, that you be the one who helps us see the, the truths that have existed here for thousands of years, and yet have the power to impact us right here in 2016. So Father, you know where each and every person is at in their spiritual walk with you. And so that's why I ask that you do what only you can do, and you take the words of me, this one man, and you somehow translate them to the hearts of each person here so that they hear what you want to have for them, no matter where they're at. If they're, they're just searching out whether to follow you, or they've been following you for a long time, that today you would help each and every one of us to take a step yet closer to becoming like Christ, so that we would love like Jesus loved. So Father, do this today for your glory and for our joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Last week when we kicked off this series, we did verses 1 through 3. And what we saw was that Paul used this Greek word for love called agape. It's this unconditional love. It wasn't like philia love, this friendship love where it's, you know, side by side and respect. It, it wasn't eros, which is like sexual passion and the kind of stuff that makes you draw funny little birthday cards. It's, it was agape. It, it was this love, this force that was outward, focused on others and it was unconditional. It did not want anything in return because it was so focused on the other person. And we see that's the kind of love that God calls us to. So we saw that love is a verb. That love is an action. It's to be lived out. And that brings us now to the heart of this chapter, this most famous part. And we're going to do verses 4 through 7 today. Let me read. Love is patient. Love is kind. It it is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, most times when you hear this read, you hear the next phrase included in it. Love never fails or love never ends, as some translations put it. And we're not going to capture that today because that actually is beginning a brand new thought. And we'll see how that fits in with next week. So today we're just going to do verses 4 through 7. And what you see there, as it gets going, is you're like, wow, Aaron, it, this is beautiful. And it should be. It's, it's poetry. And in fact, this week I, I learned that in the Greek, Paul, as he's writing this out, each of those phrases starts with the same vowel sound, the, the same letter in a sense. And, and so it's this very rhythmic type poem And I think poetry does something that just straight-up words doesn't do. But Paul's a very logical person. If you go into the book of Romans, you see him lay out this amazing treatise of what the gospel is. But suddenly here, he shifts from logic to poetry. Because poetry has this ability to not only go to the mind, but to go to the heart. And it can take these truths and bring it to you in a different way. So rather than just going, oh, I see, you suddenly go, oh, I feel it. But what happens then is we get this feeling about this. We sometimes can see the, the, the beautiful part of it, and we miss the core. And so sometimes what we have to do is slow down and look at it phrase by phrase to hear more and deeper of what is being communicated. And so let's do that. Right here, the first phrase is love is patient. Now, when the guy is getting ready to take the girl out, for the first time or maybe the second time and there's some sparks there and he's waiting down in the living room and she's up in the bedroom in the bathroom getting ready he's patient because he knows she's getting ready for him so he will take all the time in the world it's easy to be patient in that moment but when you're married and you have kids and one of your kids is learning to tie a shoe and you want to get out the door now that's when your love is tested You don't want to be patient. And it sounds like love. I'll just do it for them. But you're not really serving them. You're doing this for yourself. Real love is patient. And so you will stand and wait as the little kid figures out how to take it around and pull the loop through, and it's driving you nuts. But that's love. He goes on. He says, love is kind. Tonight, Valentine's Day, I'm sure there's going to be a few couples that are going to go out. A few gifts will be exchanged, and the girl's going to give the guy a, a shirt or maybe a clone that she thinks smells really good. He's going to give her flowers and chocolate, and they're, they're going to go out for dinner, and uh, it, it's going to be beautiful. And they're being very, very kind to one another. It's easy in that moment. But when you have the angry customer call you up and f-bomb you out on the phone while you're at work, that's when you're being tested now. Can you love this person? When all you want to do is hang up or you just want to let them have it right back. But that's not love. Or, or when you're out at the soccer field and your kid's out there running around and some dad begins to lose it. And not only lose it, he starts yelling at your kid, look out, mama bear's about to kill him. <laughs> but that's not love. That's not kind. You're, you're, do you see? It is hard. It is tough. To love. And I think that's Paul's point. And he goes on. He next says that love is not envious. When when you envy, you have this like deep longing, almost like a resentment that someone has what you don't. And that keeps you from rejoicing in what they have. So your neighbor pulls in with a new car and you can't sit there and go, wow, that's great. Because inside you're thinking, oh, I wish that was mine. Or or, or you're at school, and and someone has something really good happen to them, and you can't go, hey, that's wonderful, genuinely. Inside you're thinking, why doesn't that stuff happen for me? Do you see, when you envy someone else, you aren't then focused on them. You're focused on me. And if you're focused right here, now you're not loving. Because as we're seeing, love is not self-serving. It is focused on others. And that's tough. Tough. The next one is that love does not brag. It does not boast. Same thing. Sometimes, you know, like Jeff has an interview coming up, and they're going to ask him all these questions. You've got to somehow walk this line to make you look good so that they'll want you. And so you're going to be very tempted to boast in the interview. And yet that's all you're doing is then getting all the attention here. And what your coworkers really want is for you to love them, to care for them. If you're walking in always taking the credit, you're not loving Because you're focused on me. Love does not boast. It will boast, but it boasts in others. And it ultimately boasts in the Lord. It does not boast in self. Are you seeing it? This is tough. This is hard. This is not easy. And and we could go on. We could sit there and look, you know, slow down and take a look at that love is not puffed up. Or or how it's not rude. Or it's not self-serving. It's not easily angered. It doesn't get resentful. And, And sometimes you can look through that and go no big deal some of you you look at that and go well i don't get easily angered i mean you're like you know stuff that happens is like water on a duck's back it just rolls off no big deal for the others of you man it is hard you, you just your temper wants to just flare up the kids won't do what you say your, your boss is being unreasonable and you just find yourself struggling with anger I and mean, they didn't put on their blinker come on now it's hard to love It's difficult. It is tough to love. But I think that's Paul's point. And inside here, he's helping you see that it's tough to love, but love itself, it's tough. Skip to verse 7. We see here, he says that love bears all things. You know, when the couple is standing on the stage in, in front of the pastor and their witnesses And the bride's dressed in white. And the groom, you know, who knew he could clean up that well? You know, and and they're standing there. It's just glorious. And then someone walks up to a microphone. And they begin to read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. And you sit there and go, wow, it's so beautiful. Yeah, that's love. It sounds so good. But then the couple goes home. And life begins to happen. And the guy says something not very kind Will you, the wife, bear it? The the wife begins acting really unreasonable. Will the husband bear it? Because love bears all things. It also says that love believes all things. I I don't think Paul is saying that love is gullible. I I, I do not look at the National Enquirer and think, Oh, really? I had no idea that aliens landed here last week. Right? you don't just buy into everything but we live in a very cynical world when you've got a world with all that's going on with our politics right now and all the clickbait that's out there it's really difficult to believe everything and so i don't think he's saying that it believes all things and is just you know stupid but it's one thing to live with a posture of love where you have a sense of generosity where you're going to give someone the benefit of the doubt where you're going to take an interest in them and you're going to say okay I'll believe you for this moment. Now, the very verse before, it says it rejoices in truth. So you don't just say, okay, I'll believe anything. But do you live with a posture of giving someone a chance, giving them a positive opportunity that you're for them? And will they see it in your eyes? Will they notice it in how you listen? Will they see it in your posture? Can they hear it in your voice that you will believe all things? And then he says that love hopes all things. Hope is so needed and necessary. When you lose hope, you almost just don't want to keep on going. When someone who's struggling with depression, has, they basically have no hope. They, They just feel like they can't go on. So why get up out of bed? Why go to work? Why should I even go on in life? They lose hope. But love, it never gives up hope. It hopes in all things. Love says something better is yet to come. And that leads into the last one, that it endures all things. This is why I use the image of an uh, MMA fighter. He's going to go after it and keep fighting, keep going. He's not going to quit, no matter how difficult it gets. You keep going. Love endures. And so that means when the marriage is going really rocky, love does not utter the word divorce. It says, I'm here to the end. That, That when You know, the kid rebels and yells back and says horrendous things. The parent does not abandon them because love will endure all things. That when your boss is being incredibly unreasonable, even begins to accuse you of things you haven't done, love does not walk in and cuss the boss out and, you know, try to resign in a blaze of glory because love will endure all things. Love is tough. It's not just this soft, beautiful thing. It is this love. It's this hard, rockful thing. It will not quit. Love endures. This week, as I was working on my message, I stumbled onto a video. It was produced by another church. I don't know the church, uh, but I honestly don't think they would mind me showing the video. And so I'd like you to put your attention and watch Catherine's story.
1: For multiple generations, the men in my family left their wives. The word love was a fictitious thing, something that only happened in fairy tales. As a child, we moved 11 times. Isolation was inevitable. I developed a numbness deep inside of me, a place to go whenever I felt alone. I had friends, but I always kept a safe distance. I was afraid of being loved, afraid of being wholly known. In college, love took on a different meaning. Love seemed like an adventure, a new frontier to explore. I fell for a man and slipped into an abusive relationship, physically, emotionally, sexually. I crawled deeper into my numb place. Love wasn't dependable. Love was weakness. Right after college, I met Paul. I wasn't interested in any more romantic relationships. I liked my independence. But he was steadfast and disciplined with a heart after God. He was the first man I ever encountered in my life that I wanted to follow. We got married a little over a year later, but there were still places inside of me that were locked up tight. I didn't feel safe enough to open that part up to anyone. So for three and a half years, we busied ourselves with activity, and I kept my secrets hidden. Somewhere in the process, not fully trusting my husband's love, not fully trusting God's love, we drifted. We became like roommates. I started daydreaming what it would be like to not be married, to be free. So I took my wedding ring off. And four months later, my husband hadn't even noticed. So that was it. I just stopped being married. I told him I was leaving. And two days later, I moved out. Within a week of us separating, I met another man and quickly got into a relationship with him. met with a divorce lawyer and from there I spiraled. I knew God, I knew better, but I believed my life was not recoverable. I'd gone too far. I wasn't worth being loved. During that time I started coming to Crossroads. I'd sit in the back singing the song, You Make Beautiful Things. Could God really make something beautiful out of me? An adulterous woman sitting alone in the dark. I felt God say, give up that other relationship, no ties. Go back to your husband. But I was scared and numb. I wasn't sure I was ready to live in God's love to deal with the pain of the past. Seven months went by when I finally found the courage to end my affair. I chose to trust that God had a plan. I texted my husband, strictly out of obedience, and said, Can I come home? My husband welcomed me home. He forgave me. God showed me that His love is faithful. And when I experience that kind of forgiveness from God and from my husband without deserving it, that's love. It wasn't easy, but over time God softened my heart and totally changed the way I saw my husband. I learned how to receive love and how to give it back. I learned how to fully love my husband. Today, I look at Paul and I am so grateful for what we have. I no longer want some fairy tale. I want what I have raw, forged through the fire, real love, a kind of love that forgives, a love that grows through perseverance, a pure love that only comes from God. Now I know the meaning of true love.
0: I think the reason that Catherine's story resonated with me so much is that This is also my family's story. My own grandmother left my grandfather for another man and ended up pregnant by him. And they never married, and then some things came out, and my grandma came rushing back to my grandfather. And he took her back at the cost of his own family. His sisters, his parents basically excommunicated him. Why would he take such a woman? and I never had the chance to sit down and ask my grandfather and I have no idea who Paul is and I probably will never get the chance to interview him but but if they were here and I could ask them I'm sure they would say man it was tough to be honest it sucked <laughs> because it hurt to have my wife prefer the arms of another man it was tough to love And yet, when she came running back, when she sent the text, when she showed up at the door, there was something in them that said, I still love this woman. And they realized that love is tough and that they would endure. The thing is, this isn't just Catherine's story. It's not just my grandma's story. It's actually our story. Because you see, God created us. And when he did, he put his image on us. It's like he branded us and said, this is mine. It's like he gave us a wedding ring, put it on us and said, this one belongs to me. But then we walked away. We ran after other loves. We we ran into food and we ran towards money. We ran towards a job. We ran towards reputation. We ran towards sex. We ran towards substances. And we ran to all these other things. And we left our creator. And God didn't divorce us. And being our creator, he had the right to completely just snuff us out. But he didn't. Instead, he says, what you've done is wrong. There's a penalty for it. And the penalty for sin is death. But I love you so much that I'm going to pay it for you. And so Jesus comes to earth, lives a fully human life, and goes and dies on the cross. Our death So that we could now have the life that God always intended for us to have. And He welcomes us back. And what that means then is that 1 Corinthians 13, it's about love, it's about the type of love that we are supposed to show, but ultimately, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the definition of love. Think about it. Jesus was incredibly patient. His disciples were bumbling fools sometimes. And yet Jesus patiently waits to develop them and then entrusts the ministry to them. And here we are a couple thousand years later with millions of believers around the globe because these guys back in the first century got it. Jesus was kind. Think about the outcasts of the society, the the fringe people, those with leprosy, those who were poor, those who were cast out by their society. And Jesus is there having conversations with them, touching them, healing them, and calling them to follow. Jesus was God in the flesh, and yet you don't see him in the scriptures saying, bow before me. I'm the greatest. Instead, you see him saying, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the definition of love. So what should we do? Well, if you're here and you are not a follower of Jesus, your next step is to talk to God and admit it. We we live here in Iowa where everyone if you said, "Are you a Christian?" the majority are going to go, "Oh yeah, of course." But it's another thing to carry the title of Christian, it's another thing to be Jesus-centered, to place your full identity in this crazy story that God took on flesh, went to a cross, died our death and rose again from the dead. Sounds like something out of mythology. And yet it's true. And to be Jesus-centered says that story right there is everything to me. It's the core of who I am. And when you make that the center of your life, now you become a Jesus follower. And so if you do not follow Jesus, I just invite you to follow him. He loves you. He died for you. He endured it all for you. So because he gave his life for you, I invite you, give your life now to follow him. Most people mark it in prayer. They just take a moment to pray and say, God, I recognize that I am a sinner and my sin separates me from me. But you did not divorce me. You did not snuff me out. You instead went and paid my penalty so that I could come back to you. You've forgiven me of my adultery. You love me. And so now I love you and I will follow you to the ends of the earth. And then you begin to follow him. For those of you that do follow Jesus, I'd encourage you, keep your eyes on Christ. Last week, when we kicked this series off, I gave you the love challenge. Uh, I I learned later that there's actually a book called the love challenge. And one person told me like, oh yeah, I've already done the love challenge. I was like, well, this one's different because I made this one up. Mine's probably not as good, uh, but here's what the love challenge is. I'm challenging my church family to read 1 Corinthians 13 every day, the entire chapter. And if you read it slow, it will take you about two minutes. And you just read it every single morning. And then at night, you just ponder back upon the day, reflect, how did I live? Did I let God's love flow through me towards other? And when it didn't, why was that? And just work at keeping your eyes on Christ. Because it's my belief that if you keep your eyes on Jesus by studying the scriptures, by talking to God through prayer, by getting around other believers, whether it be Sunday or in a growth group, and letting other people help you keep your eyes on Jesus, God will begin to shape and mold you into the image of Jesus. That image that he put there at the beginning of your creation that got marred through sin, he will restore that image. And that is the image of Jesus. And he will then help you to love like Jesus loved. And that will change your marriage. It will impact your parenting. It will revolutionize your work relationships. Your neighborhoods will become different. Our church family will be the most loving church the people have ever known. All because we kept our eyes on Jesus, the definition of love. Now, it's not going to be easy. Because love is tough. It is tough to be patient. It is tough to always be kind. It is tough to bear these things. It is so tough to endure. And yet, if we keep our eyes on Jesus, the one who was patient, the one who was kind, the one who is not just rejoicing in the truth, but is is the truth, when we see that this is Jesus, then he does his work in us. And it's a day-by-day type thing. And so this week, to add to the love challenge— I encourage you, if you haven't done it with this yet, pick it up. Just start with this today. Read 1 Corinthians 13. But this week, I want you to add in a little wrinkle. I want you now, this week, as you read it, to realize that this not only is the type of love that you are called to live out, but it's also describing Jesus. And as you look at it, start seeing God's love for you, because I think that will revolutionize your life. And you will find yourself being able to be patient the little kid as he ties his shoes. You'll find yourself being incredibly kind to your spouse, even though he or she may not be fully there. You'll find yourself not having to boast at work. You won't be envious of your neighbors because your eyes are on Jesus, the one who died for you, who's given his extravagant love to you. So you have what you need. And so now you can go and love no matter how tough it is. So may you keep your eyes on Jesus. And remember, it's tough to love, but love is tougher. God, would you help each and every one of us to keep our eyes on Christ and see how tough he was, how tough you are. And and as we keep our eyes on him, it will empower us and strengthen us in our very soul, in our spirit, so that we might go and love with this agape love as tough as it might be some days. And as we do, we would change the world. God, I pray for the marriages in this room, that you would help those that might be struggling, that you would bring healing for those that are are doing well, that they would go to a new level. I I pray for parents in this room, that they would love their kids purely with agape love, not looking to get anything from their children, but love their kids in a way so these kids would raise up and know who Jesus is. I I pray for those of us who are in school, that we would love our classmates, even when they're being foolish, when they say stupid things, that we might somehow walk that line of tough love. I I pray that you'd help us not to to boast, not to envy, not not to uh, rejoice in evil, but that instead we would bear all things, we would believe all things, we would hope all things, and we would endure all things, because Jesus, that's what you did for us. So God, do this deep work in us so you can do this great work through us. And may we watch you impact the world through the gospel, which is at work in our lives. And I ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.